following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today we're in the book of Acts. So we're going to carry on our series uh, through this book of the Bible. We're looking at the stories of the early church and the way in which the church and the mission of God through Jesus got going uh, in the first century. Acts 15 is where we're going to be today. So as you're opening your Bibles to Acts 15, uh, Catherine's going to come and read this passage for us. Thank you, Catherine. Acts 15, verses 1 to 21. Certain people came down to Judea, from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Thanks, Catherine. All right. Well, with this chapter, we are halfway through the book of Acts. So that's something to celebrate, isn't it? Made it. Made it halfway. And it it feels, I think, like a long journey already because we started this in lockdown. We started Acts during lockdown, so that was a crazy time, and every week felt like about a year during that time. So it probably already feels like it's been a huge journey, but we're halfway through, okay? So it's all downhill from here. It's all plain sailing, kind of, 
from here. Uh, But this passage in Acts 15 is a really important one in the book of Acts. Uh, It's right in the middle of the book, so it's the center of the book structurally. Uh, And it's also the center of the book theologically. So this is, you could think of this passage being kind of like the summit of the book of Acts. So far, we've been kind of climbing up the mountain, making our way to the top, and now we come to the summit today, this high point, this, this, this pivotal point in the book of Acts where we kind of get a view out over everything. This is a really important place. And then from there, everything else really that happens in the book of Acts flows out from this. All the rest of the action kind of follows on from what happens in this chapter. So this is a critical chapter in the unfolding story of Acts and in the unfolding of the biblical story. So let me just briefly give you the background here. Uh, We've had Paul and Barnabas going out on this missions trip, and we talked about that last week. They've gone out, they've shared the gospel, they've planted these churches. There's a whole lot of people that have become Christians, and most of the people that have become Christians are Gentiles. So they're not Jews. Most of them are non-Jewish people, they're Gentiles, they've been coming to faith. And Paul and Barnabas come back at the end of this missions trip and they talk to the church about how wonderful that is and everyone's very excited, all these Gentiles coming to faith. But there is one group back in Jerusalem that's not happy. It's not happy about all these Gentiles coming to faith. There's a group of Jews who believe if these Gentiles are going to become Christians, then what needs to happen is that they should be required to keep the law of Moses. It's not enough that they are saved by Jesus. That's important, but it's equally important that they then learn to observe all of the various practices of the Jews. So the men need to get circumcised, and everyone needs to keep the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws, the various rituals and customs and traditions of the Jewish people. In other words, this group believed that the doorway to faith was through Judaism. And the way in which Gentiles come into the church and come into relationship with Jesus is through the doorway of Judaism. That's what they insisted on. And it was a big enough deal, they felt, to let Gentiles in at all. I mean, that was a big step for them to take. They felt like at least the Gentiles could be required to keep our law, the law of Moses. Now, that's not what Paul and Barnabas had been doing. As they'd been sharing the gospel with these Gentiles, they had put no such requirements on Gentiles. They had not required them to keep the law, not required them to be circumcised, none of those things. They just told them to to follow Jesus, place their faith in Christ, and they'd be saved. That was it. So this then brings Paul and Barnabas into conflict with this group in Jerusalem that were claiming the Gentiles need to keep the law. And this became such a huge conflict in the church. Paul and Barnabas said, you know, we've got to go down to Jerusalem and get this sorted out. We need to go and meet with the church leaders. We need to meet the apostles. We need to meet the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and hammer this issue out. Otherwise, it's going to split the church. So Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem and they meet the elders there. And there's a huge meeting that's convened, a huge council. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And this has all the apostles there, all the leading lights of the church are there. James would have been there. Peter was there. Probably John was there. Paul and Barnabas were there. And they met to discuss this question. Do the Gentiles need to keep the law? Or can they just be saved as Gentiles? And so at this meeting, Peter stands up. He gets up first. And he talks about his experience with Cornelius. And tells the story of how God led him to Cornelius and how Cornelius, this Gentile, this Roman centurion, was saved. And how he's now become part of the family of faith. And and Peter says, well, you know, we, we should not require people like Cornelius, these Gentiles, to be burdened 
with the, the, the yoke of the Jewish law. God doesn't discriminate between them and us. They're saved by grace just as we are. We should let them come in freely. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they talk all about their missionary travels and the wonderful things God's done and all these Gentiles that have been coming to faith. And then James gets up. And James, he's got some serious mana in the church. He's got a real clout here. And he stands up, one of the leaders. This is the brother of Jesus, you know, so you're going to listen to what he says. He stands up and he opens up his Bible to the book of Amos. And he reads this passage out that talks about how God welcomes the Gentiles into faith and how God's intention, even back in the Old Testament, was always that the Gentiles would bear his name. It wouldn't just be Jewish people, but that, but that his kingdom and his family would be open to people of all ethnicities and all nationalities. And James therefore says, well, we shouldn't make it difficult for people that are wanting to come to faith to come into the kingdom and come into the church and come into relationship with God. Now, James does say, he does suggest a few little things that the Gentiles who come to faith should be required to do. He does put a few little stipulations forward, and we can read those in verse 20. He says, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And that might seem a little bit strange. It kind of seems like James is going back on what he's just said, like he's now putting these requirements onto the Gentiles. But you've, you've got to remember... James is not suggesting things that the Gentiles need to do in order to be saved. These are not requirements for salvation. These are requirements for healthy relationships with the Jewish people. These are things James is saying this would be good to do for Gentiles just so the relationships between Jews and Gentiles can be a little bit more harmonious because he knew you're going to have Jewish people now sitting in church and sitting in homes beside non-Jewish people and you're going to have a Jew sitting there eating their food, and beside them, you're getting some Gentile eating this medium-rare steak that is going to be a problem for the Jewish person, right? I mean, they, they just have their scruples about diet, and that was a big thing, and you can't just give that up. When that's the way you've been conditioned all your entire life, these strict dietary laws, you, don't suddenly, you can't suddenly throw all of that away. And James is saying that's an issue. That's an issue of conscience. So for these Gentiles that are coming into faith, let's just ask that they observe some of the food restrictions so that there's respect for their Jewish brothers and sisters, so the relationships can be a little bit more unified, and so that there's that, that mutual respect that can go on, and they can eat freely and have hospitality more easily in each other's homes. So these are not requirements for salvation. They're requirements really for socialization. And James's view wins the day. This is the view that becomes the official policy of the church. Maybe not everyone in the meeting necessarily agreed with everything that James and the others said. There were probably some that didn't. They probably still saw it the other way. But whatever, they still were willing to back the outcome of this meeting. They were still willing to say, all right, we support this. This is going to be how it is. We're not going to place the full Jewish law onto these, onto these Gentiles. We're not going to place any of the law. We're just going to allow them to come to faith just as we are. And so they agree we're going to write this up. We're going to write a letter. So it's there, it's on paper or papyrus, and they gave this letter to Paul and Barnabas to take back to the church in Antioch, and it was read out to all the believers there. And it says the church was encouraged to hear that message. They were so pleased to hear 
that what Paul and Barnabas had been saying and sharing was, was now endorsed by the leaders of the church, especially the men, I imagine, were particularly pleased to hear about this for obvious reasons. But they were, they were pleased and strengthened, and the church was edified by this, by this message. And so this becomes a really important moment in the whole history of the early church. It's a pivotal moment. It's important from a cultural perspective because this affirms the equality of Jew and Gentile. And that's so important. We don't often recognize that today, but this was a huge issue in the first century. And this affirms Jew and Gentile equal in God's eyes. It's an important moment in terms of the unity of the church because it heads off a potential split between the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. That could have been a massive split in the church right there. But most importantly, this is a significant moment theologically. Because in this meeting, the church and the leaders of the church, they rally around the central truth that is at the heart of the gospel and is at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's put, I think, most succinctly by Peter in his speech in the council when he says this. Have a look in verse 11. Peter says, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So what Peter's saying here is we are saved by grace alone. That's it. That's the only way in which we can be saved. It's not, it's not grace plus something, right? It's not, it's not grace plus the Jewish law. It's not grace plus all these traditions. It's not grace plus all these various customs. It's just grace and grace alone. That's it. That's all that we need. You could express it in this simple little equation. Grace plus nothing equals everything. That's what Peter's saying. And that's at the heart of our faith. Grace plus nothing equals everything. So grace is what Jesus has done for you. Grace is Jesus' life lived for you, his death for you, his resurrection for you, raising to, to life so that you can be raised to new life. It's all that Christ has done on your behalf, things that you could never have done for yourself. Nothing is what you can add to that. Right? Nothing is what you bring to the table. Nothing is what you've got to, to add to that in any way. Nothing you can do, nothing you can contribute, nothing you can put on the table, not even just positioning yourself just slightly better so that maybe it makes it a little bit easier for God to possibly love you. No, nothing, nothing you can do. And grace plus nothing equals everything. And the everything is all that we have because of Jesus. Paul says every spiritual blessing we have in the heavenly realms, we have forgiveness, we have adoption into God's family now as his sons and his daughters, we become sons and daughters of God, we're part of his kingdom, we're reconciled to the Father. Jesus, everything that Jesus has becomes ours, right? His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His ascension is our ascension. His place in heaven before the Father is our place in heaven before the Father. His future inheritance becomes our future inheritance. Everything that Jesus has is ours. And it's by grace and grace alone. Grace plus nothing equals everything. That's what Peter was contending for. That's what the church agreed to. That's what the church has affirmed down through the ages because it's right here in the pages of the Bible. Now, there have always been people who have resisted that. There have always been people who have maybe felt like it's just too good to be true or just like it's surely there must be something 
that I can do? Surely it can't be absolutely nothing that I can bring. There must be something I could do. In Paul's day, it was, it was these Jews arguing that maybe we could just put the Jewish law in there. Grace plus the Jewish law equals everything. People have done this all through history. Fast forward to the 16th century. You've got preachers going around towns selling indulgences and trying to convince people that if you just buy this indulgence and put your money in the coffer, then all of your sins can be forgiven and you can be totally restored to this state of innocence. And you can also get your relatives out of purgatory and get get them to heaven as well, all by just paying your money, putting it in the box. So it was grace plus indulgences equals everything. And see, people like that will never tell you that, that grace is wrong. Yeah, 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 we need grace. We need Jesus. It's just that that's not enough. It also needs whatever. And that's what led Martin Luther in the 16th century to nail his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, protesting against the sale of indulgences, become such a champion of grace alone, contending for that doctrine. And Luther wasn't making up some new doctrine, was he? He was affirming what you see right here. He was affirming the truth of what Peter says in Acts 15 and what the Bible says a multitude of times in a multitude of ways that we are saved by grace alone, aside from any works. And this is what Luther campaigned so vigorously for. We are saved by grace alone. He put it succinctly in one of his Christmas sermons when he said this, He who does not receive salvation purely through grace, independently of all good works, certainly will never secure it. In other words, the minute that we even try to add something, the minute that we try to add some, some thing, some act, some deed, some law, we have undermined the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. We've undermined the sufficiency and we can't receive grace until we receive grace and grace alone. Now, I think today we have a bit of a different problem. I think there's something else today that is disrupting that equation. I think there's a different era that has crept into the church, a different kind of heresy that we're dealing with today. I would say, maybe I'm generalizing a little bit, but I would say in general, most Christians today are okay with the idea that we are saved by grace alone. Right? I think most of us would agree with that. We know there's nothing I can do. We're saved by grace alone. Understand that. We certainly don't want to put anything else in, in someone's way who's becoming a Christian. We want to say, yeah, you, just, you just place your faith in Jesus. You can become a Christian. We're good with that. Salvation by grace alone. I think the problem today comes after we become a Christian. I think the problem now is that once people become Christians, they then start to think for some reason that grace is not enough. And after we are saved, we then start to think, well, there must be something that I can do to contribute to my salvation. There must be something I can do to sort of maintain my standing with God, maintain my favor with God somehow, keep myself in God's good books. I know that it was grace that got me in, but I'm not sure that grace is going to keep me in. I think I'm going to have to do something else. And so we start taking the nothing and we start making it something. And so it becomes grace plus living a good Christian life equals everything. Grace plus praying at least three times a day equals everything. Grace plus reading my Bible every day equals everything. Grace plus sharing my faith 
once a week equals everything. Grace plus not drinking or smoking or swearing equals everything. Whatever, you fill in the gaps. We put these other things in there. And I mean, these are, these are all good things, right? Nothing wrong with that, of course. I mean, reading the Bible, that's great. Kicking our old habits, that's great. Uh, praying, these are good things. These are right. These are healthy. The problem is we try and put them into that equation. The problem is that we try to make those things or we subtly start thinking those things are the basis of my relationship with God. And that that is what is keeping me in God's presence and in relationship with Him. And that's fundamentally undermining grace plus nothing equals everything. Now, I think there's a couple of different forms that this takes. Now, I find it helpful to think about this in terms of a particular image. Think of the image of a, a treadmill. I think a lot of Christians feel like they're on a treadmill. You know, we just, we just constantly feel like there's all these things that we need to do in order to maintain our relationship with God. We've got to pray, we've got to read the Bible, we've got to go to church, get baptized, we've got to give money away, we've got to help the poor, we've got to serve, we've got to go to a life group, we've got to do all these things. We're just constantly bombarded with all these things I've got to do to be a good Christian. It's just a lot, you know, and you go to church every week and you hear another sermon about something else you're supposed to do from someone like me that's standing up telling you those things and you feel like there's just a lot coming at me. I feel like I'm constantly running on this treadmill just to sort of keep it going here in my faith. Now, I think there's a very small group of Christians that feel like they can do that. They feel like they, they actually, they've, they've got, maybe you feel like this. You're like, actually, I can handle this treadmill. I'm good. I've, I've got it. I've got all my spiritual practices going on here. Got a church attendance. I'm praying. I'm reading the Bible. I'm serving the poor over here. I'm helping at the food bank here. I'm helping at the homeless shelter over here, doing all these things. I've got it. I, I can handle this. I'm good. So some of you may feel like you are handling the treadmill. The problem for you is that that is exactly what the Bible calls self-righteousness. When we start to think that it's my own religiosity that is maintaining my relationship with God. When we start to think it's my own keeping of rules and laws and whatever else that's keeping me in good standing with God, that's self-righteousness. That's thinking that it's my righteousness that's the key factor in my relationship with God. That's exactly what the Pharisees believed. And Jesus had some pretty stern words for them. But they were great law keepers. They were great on the treadmill. They ran on that thing all day long. They kept all the rules. And then they just made up other rules to keep so that they wouldn't break these rules over here. They were expert law keepers. But Jesus said to them, you have missed the whole point. You've missed the whole reason that I came. And the problem, of course, with self-righteous people is they then start looking down their noses at other people, don't they? You find this a little bit? You know, you just start looking down at other Christians that are not measuring up to where you're at. And you're like, well, you know, they're not doing so well. I, I bet God is a bit less pleased with them. At least I'm kind of maintaining it here. I may not be as good as that super spiritual person, but I'm a lot better than them. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself. So that's the self-righteous. Now, there is another category of people, and I think this is a much bigger category of people today. And these are Christians who start out running on the treadmill. And they start out trying to do all this stuff. And then after a while, they just figure out, this is just really, really hard. It's just hard. It's, it's hard being a Christian or that kind of Christian. It's exhausting. There's just never-ending demands of what I should do and who I should be. And I just feel like I've always got to just do this stuff to try and maintain my relationship with God. And after a while, they either step off the treadmill or they fall off the treadmill. And they just sit there with their head in their hands wondering where they've gone wrong. 
and they feel like they're a failure because they can't measure up to the expectation of what they're supposed to be to be a good Christian. And they feel condemned. These are people who are self-condemned. I remember preaching in a church in the US and a young woman came up to me after the service and with tears in her eyes, she said, I just don't feel like I can ever do enough to please God. Now, she's living in a place of self-condemnation. Where she feels like she's tried the treadmill and every so often she tries getting back on the spiritual treadmill, but it just doesn't work, it's too hard and she ends up just standing there again, just wondering why God has this look of disappointment on his face when he looks at her. Now, some of you might feel that way. You feel like you're just a bit of a failure as a Christian and that God's fundamental attitude towards you is one of disappointment. That's a horrible place to live. That's a horrible kind of Christianity, but it's where a lot of people live. It's the kind of faith a lot of people have. So you've got these two groups. You've got the self-righteous and you've got the self-condemned. And in many ways they are different, but in one fundamental way they are the same. And that is that for both groups, the determining factor in their relationship with God is their own spiritual performance. That fundamentally they believe that God's acceptance of them is based on what they do. One group feels like they're doing pretty well and so they feel like God's pretty pleased. The other group feels like they're doing really badly and so God's pretty unimpressed with them. But the determining factor for both groups is their own spiritual performance. And that is such a fundamental distortion of our gospel. That is such a fundamental misunderstanding of the truth that is at the heart of this passage, at the heart of our faith, at the heart of the gospel. That equation, grace plus nothing equals everything, that's not just something that applies to you the day that you became Christian. That's not just something that applies when you became a Christian and then somehow you can throw that away or you can change it. That equation is as true for you today as it was when you first became a Christian. Today, grace plus nothing equals everything. The only thing today that is holding you in the arms of God is the grace of Jesus. The only thing today that is keeping you accepted and connected to God is the unconditional grace that He's showing you in Jesus Christ. It's not what you do. It's not what you do. God does not relate to you on the basis of your performance. He relates to you on the basis of Jesus' performance. And Jesus performed perfectly. He ran perfectly on that treadmill. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And so now God takes your life and He takes Jesus' life and He fuses those two things together in an incredible way so that your identity now, if you're, if you're a Christian, is in Jesus. Your standing is in Christ. Your life is in Jesus. Your whole reality is in Jesus. And now when God looks at you, what does He see? He sees Jesus. He sees the face of his own beloved son. Even though you're a broken, sinful person, when God looks at you now, he sees Jesus. And just as he said to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, because you're in Christ, God looks at you and says the same thing. He says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. God doesn't relate to you anymore on the basis of your obedience. He relates to you on the basis of Jesus' obedience. He doesn't accept you because of your performance. He accepts you because of Jesus' performance. He doesn't hold you in his arms because 
of the quality of your life, whether it's good or bad, he holds you because of the quality of Jesus' life. He treats you and relates to you now on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, not your righteousness. Grace plus nothing is just as true for you today as it was when you first became a Christian. Grace is not just something that saves you and then needs to be added to. Grace is sufficient. It is sufficient to save you and it is sufficient to sustain you. There's nothing you can add to it any single day. It's grace and grace alone, all the way down. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. You know, he meant it. It is finished. All of your attempts to try and earn your way into God's good books by some deeds of your own, it's finished. All of your sense of failure because you don't feel like you measure up, even to your own expectations, let alone God's, it's finished. It's finished because Christ is enough. It's not about what you do anymore. It's about what Christ has done. And his work is finished. Let me read you the words of an old Lutheran theologian named Gerhard Ford. He wrote this at the end of his life. And he looked back on his life and reflected on where he'd been and how far he'd come. He said, am I making progress? If I'm really honest, it seems to me the question is odd, even a little ridiculous. As I get older and death draws nearer, it doesn't seem to get any easier. I get a little more impatient, a little more anxious about having perhaps missed what this life has to offer, a little slower, harder to move, a little more sedentary and set in my ways. Am I making progress? Well, maybe it seems as though I sin less, but that may be only because I'm getting tired. <laughs> it's just too hard to keep indulging the lusts of youth. Is that sanctification? I wouldn't think so. But can it be, perhaps, that this is precisely the unconditional gift of grace that helps me to see and admit all of that? I hope so. The grace of God should lead us to see the truth about ourselves and to gain a certain lucidity, a certain humor, a certain down-to-earthness. You hear what he's saying? You know, we, we focus so much on our own spiritual progress and our own spiritual performance and how far we've come and how far we've got to go. And we worry so much, I'm not doing enough. And am I really growing enough as a Christian? And am I really, have I really made progress? And we can fixate on these things. We fixate so much on our own spiritual progress that the focus becomes more about what I'm doing for God than what God has done for me. We become the center of the whole equation rather than the grace of God. But growing deeper in the unconditional love of God, that is what spiritual progress looks like. It's not just about trying to be a better person, better Christian, more virtuous kind of person. It's about growing in the grace of God and letting that grace take hold of our lives more and more deeply. That is progress. That is sanctification. And the beautiful thing is that the more we bask in the grace of God, the more deeply we drink this in, the more that it provides for us the real motivation for obedience. See, if you're just obeying God out of fear, if you're obeying Him just out of legalism or some sense of obligation or some sense of self-condemnation or self-righteousness, it's a very weak engine. It's a very weak engine to get you anywhere. 
in your Christian life. But if you are really apprehending the grace of God and being apprehended by the grace of God, that provides a far deeper and richer motivation to pursue Christ out of gratitude for all he's done for us. We don't obey God in order to be accepted by him. We obey God because we are accepted by him. We don't obey God in order to get him to love us more. We obey him because he already loves us unconditionally and completely. We don't obey him in order to gain greater security with him. We obey him because we are already absolutely secure in Christ. And now out of that security, out of that freedom, we can obey and we can pursue Christ. Not out of legalism and obligation anymore but out of gratitude and joy because of all that he's done for us. So I want to just encourage you this morning that if there's any way in your life that you are still living on that performance treadmill, whether you feel like you're running on the treadmill or whether you feel like you've fallen off the treadmill, if that, if that is still the way that you're thinking about your Christian life, I want to just beg you to throw away the treadmill. Just get rid of the treadmill this morning. Demolish the treadmill, because it is such a distortion. It's such a corruption of our faith, and it will do you damage. It'll damage your soul. You will never feel like you can really do enough to measure up. It's such a losing battle. Get rid of the treadmill and come back again to those three fundamental words at the heart of our faith and at the heart of this passage. Grace plus nothing equals everything. Just let God Speak those three words over your life again. Just hear the power of those three words. Even as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that God would just solidify those words in your life, that you would hear him speak grace to you again and remind you of all that Christ has done for you. Grace is not what you do. It's what has been done for you by Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. I pray you'd be able to hear that word, nothing spoken again in a good way, but that God would really speak that into your heart and remind you there's nothing, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. Nothing. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he already does. You'll never be any more acceptable to God than you are right now because he accepts you just as you are. There's nothing you can do. And then hear him speak over your life the word everything. That everything Jesus has is yours. Just soak again in the richness of all that Jesus has provided for you. Grace plus nothing equals everything. I pray that we would be able to bask in that reality. That we'd be able to live out of that place more and more deeply. And enter into the richness of all that Jesus has done for us. I pray it wouldn't just be words anymore for us. Wouldn't just be an equation on screen. But this would be the living reality of our lives. That we would be people of grace. Not just saved by grace. But living deeply in the grace of God. Every day of our lives. Let's pray. So God, I want to pray now that you would come and press your word onto our hearts. And I pray for anyone here, God, who is just still living on that treadmill and maybe feeling like they're making it okay. 
I pray even those that are, God, even those that feel like they're, they're doing just fine in their Christian life, I pray, God, you would remind them today that it is purely your grace that is sustaining them. It is purely your love, your pleasure, your gift that is sustaining them. And God, for those here in the room who just feel like you are looking at them with, with a look of disappointment on your face, I pray, God, they would be able to lift up their eyes today and just hear you saying again to them, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. God, let us hear you again, reminding us of your love for us, not because of who we are in ourselves, but because of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Lord, I pray for those who just feel like Christian failures, who are maybe on the verge of giving up, because it's just too hard and the mountain seems too high. I pray, God, that you would just speak into their hearts again this morning those words. It's grace and grace alone. May they know they are loved unconditionally in spite of themselves and even on their very worst days, they are absolutely secure in your arms. God, I rely on you to speak into the hearts of all those that need to hear from you today. Remind us of your grace. And we pray that as we go from here today, that we would live deeply in that reality. Whenever we're tempted, God, to put something in the nothing, remind us again. Grace plus nothing equals everything. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.